so welcome to session number three. Uh, this session is where what we're doing is we're thinking through issues around accumulation and the time spaces of class. And really when we, we thought about holding this session, what we wanted to do was some conceptual work. And really to do some conceptual work that would create some common ground between Thomas's work in Capital in the 21st century and the social sciences. And it really we wanted to think about how we could extend his analysis of accumulation through time into an analysis of social relations of class and their, inequality and their reproduction. So I will be, I'm going to be chair. My name is Laura Baer. I'm associate professor in the Department of Anthropology here at LSE. Um, and I've worked for over 20 years in India, mainly in West Bengal, most recently on issues of austerity in the public sector and how that affects the livelihoods of workers um, in Calcutta. Um, I, I will be speaking first. And then to help me really create an interdisciplinary dialogue will be uh, Professor Gareth Jones from the Department of Geography here at LSE, followed by Professor Mike Savage, who's head of the Department of Sociology at LSE and also co-chair of the Inequalities Institute. And then we'll become truly interdisciplinary with uh, Thomas's comments at the end. So thank you. I guess So what I want to do this afternoon is really to argue for a rapprochement of quantitative and qualitative approaches to capital and time. And I'm going to argue for this rapprochement because I think it's the only way that we can fully understand or, or enter into the time spaces of inequality that exist all around us. And the reason I think we need such a rapprochement between quantitative and qualitative approaches to inequality is because they each contain two different perspectives on capital and time and their, and their relationship. Quantitative approaches, like that of Thomas, in Thomas Piketty's book, treat time as a neutral medium, as a kind of container in which patterns of accumulation unfold. And of course, this gives us a very, very powerful analysis of uh, changing trends in inequality, as exemplified in Piketty's magisterial book. So this is important. But qualitative approaches give us a different perspective on capital and time. They take us inside the time spaces in which time is one element in people's social experiences and in their social relationships, and that out of which forms of accumulation are then generated. So a qualitative approach takes us more inside these time spaces. And I'm going to show, to really tell you a little bit more about how I see this qualitative approach and why I think it's important by drawing on the work of Marx and Bourdieu and the work within my own discipline of social anthropology as exemplified in some of my own recent writing on conflicts in time and navigating austerity. So why, let me just take you inside a little bit more why I think a rapprochement is necessary between quantitative and qualitative approaches to inequality. Quantitative approaches to capital and time, like in Piketty's book, really take us inside the story of the absolute amounts of capital and as part of a national stock and how they're distributed. They show us the share of public and private capital of the national income. And they really take us inside the unequal reproductive power of capital's rate of growth in rentier and finance sectors, and as we've heard this morning in Bob Rolson's work in housing as well. 
So really this creates an analytics of distribution or of how capital is distributed in society, who has the largest amount. Of course, the supermanager um, has the largest amount at the moment we heard this morning. And this creates a politics of redistribution, questions around, you know, is this, is this distribution of capital fair? So what the numbers do, what a quantitative approach does, is that it really punctures our social myth of a genius, of a lone entrepreneur who, who is able to multiply capital through his sheer qualities. And it takes us inside the unequal relations that lie behind those social myths. And as Piketty himself says in his book, such a, you know, a refusal to deal with the numbers rarely serves the interests of the less well-off. It can take us inside the unequal distribution. But I think qualitative approaches to capital and time have, uh, have an important role as well. They give us a different vista on inequality. They take us inside the social experiences and decision-making that make up our social world at the institutional, personal, and community level. At the micro level, we can understand growing precariousness, conflicts in the rhythms of production, social reproduction, and finance. And at the macro level, we can understand institutional changes in forms of capital and then the effects of those changes on our experiences of uncertainty. So qualitative approaches create a different kind of analytics from quantitative approaches. They focus on forms of capital and their effects on social relationships. And they create a different kind of politics as well, I think which focuses less on how money is distributed or capital is distributed and focuses more on changes in forms of capital accumulation itself. Now, I would expect Thomas to really support a rapprochement between these two vistas, reading between the lines and also listening to his comments uh, this morning. Um, for example, Thomas in Capital in the 21st century critiques the economic modelling of savings behaviour because he suggests that choices about money, and I quote, depend on the social and institutional environment, family strategies and pressures, and the limitations social groups place on themselves in addition to individual psychological and cultural factors. So in this statement, uh, Thomas is gesturing towards the kind of qualitative analysis that we would like to um, suggest is important as well. So what exactly is a qualitative analysis of capital and time? How can we build up such an analysis and what are its foundations? Well, I think one of the key foundations for such an analysis um, is the description within the Marxist tradition of analysis of the ways in which uh, capital circulates in society and the different turnover rates that it has in different social institutions. And what this kind of analysis of capital does is that it really takes us inside capital in motion as a social relation. And it allows us to think about the divergent rhythms of institutions in which capital resides. Um, Marx in Capital Volume 2 famously analyzed the different rates of turnover in capital in productive institutions versus financial institutions. And he argued that productive institutions generally have a slower rate of turnover because you need to invest money in machines, in plant, in infrastructure, versus in financial transactions. You want to have the fastest speed of turnover uh, possible. And, of, of course, Marx 
you know, years ago, you know, 100 years ago or so, argued um, that, um, that finance will come into conflict with the rhythms of capital within production. So what this kind of analytical approach does is it draws us towards thinking about the qualitatively different effects of distinct forms of capital in society. And I think we can productively really extend this approach to thinking about the rhythms of governance, consumption, social reproduction, what difference it makes to have a Keynesian state that's focused on slow investment versus an austerity state that's focused on the fast return of capital to bond markets, what difference it makes to, have, to be subject to informal forms of credit versus more formal forms of credit at the level of communities and impoverished communities. Interestingly, uh, my colleague in the anthropology department, Deborah James' work, has shown that informal credit in South Africa can very often be more forgiving about rates of return than formal credit, for example. Um, and we can also think about the rhythms of status display, uh, what, what rhythms of social reproduction in terms of the differences between families that are focused on status display through commodities versus families who are focused on saving for their long-term education of children. So what we start to see are the conflictual social rhythms in various time spaces. And we can start to ask questions about what the inequalities are that are generated by these rhythms. I think another important aspect of the qualitative analysis of capital and time can be derived from Bourdieu's work. Bourdieu, from his earliest writing on Algerian society to his Pascalian uh, meditations, was trying to think about social action in time, how we as people orient ourselves in time, how we anticipate the future based on our learnt experience, and how we all act within the constraints of a particular social setting that reproduces a social field or a form of accumulation. And his key point was that our acts and the decisions that we make and the futures we anticipate remake or unmake possible futures for society. So Bourdieu has a very interesting emphasis on practice itself as temporalization, as practice as a form of realizing things in time that generates forms of accumulation and inequality. So this then leads us to very interesting questions about how do different forms of human anticipation work to reproduce inequality? At the level of the individual, how does hope versus cynicism in your capacity or endowments lead to different forms of action? And at the personal and institutional level, what are the technologies of imagination that we use in order to anticipate the future? A third, I'm not calling it a foundation because this is my idea and I, wouldn't, <laughs> I don't think I, I should uh, claim to be the foundation of anything yet. Um, but um, I, the third idea that I'd want to really uh, introduce you to in terms of the quality of analysis of capital and time is the idea that we are all laboring in time and we're creating a, a labor of time as well as we move through our social lives. As we move through our social lives and make decisions on what to do with our capital and what we want, what values we have, what we're doing is we're really mediating diverse rhythms of capital and accumulated resources in specific time spaces. And I think that if we think about the mediation of very complex and diverse rhythms of capital, it takes us beyond the very often discussed conflict between finance and production and the rate of turnovers of those, or the conflict that's been talked about um, um, you know, from Marx onwards and E.P. Thompson between the abstract clock time versus lift time, and we can get into a, a much greater understanding of the timescapes of inequality. 
And what we start to see if we look at this labor in and of time, we can start to really trace how distinctions of class, race, and gender are really uh, created from our experiences of distinct rhythms of capital that we mediate with different kinds of resources. And really our differing capacity to mediate these rhythms leads us to experience a sense of time as secure or insecure. Or we have different degrees across classes, across different forms of inequality, of experiences of time security and insecurity. So this then leads to this very interesting question of what are the degrees of time insecurity across social groups and what effects on individual and collective action do these have? So what might we need to include in a qualitative measure of time insecurity? Well, first we would need to track what time spaces different social groups live in, what contradictions in time they have to mediate, what accumulated resources can they deploy. We need to track how people and institutions take anticipatory decisions, what sorts of technologies of imagination they use to do that, how people pursue status, and what forms of inequality are generated from these anticipatory decisions. We'd also need to think about how the time security of work and social reproduction varies cross-sectionally in a particular moment in time across classes and over time generationally. So this would require historical and ethnographic inquiry. Now I wanted to give you an example of how these qualitative measures and qualitative approaches to time spaces might work from my own recent work on um, the, the economy of austerity on the Hooghly uh, River uh, in West Bengal and the kinds of time spaces of inequality that emerge from this. So in my recent study of the waterscape on the, on the Hooghly, what I did was I traced how livelihoods and forms of social reproduction were affected by the austerity policies of the Kolkata Port Trust, which administers all aspects of this, of this waterscape, trade, forms of labor such as shipbuilding, environmental regulations, businesses along its banks, and the land along, it, along the river as well. And what I was tracing was the impact of a very specific form of austerity in India that we can see throughout the world from the 1980s. Um, and, of course, we can see now, um, particularly uh, in first world contexts, again, uh, in the EU zone and in our own um, austerity politics of the recent election. What this was, was the calling, what this, the form that this took in India was the calling in of debts in the 1990s with interest by the central government from organizations, public sector organizations like the Calcutta Port Trust. Previously, there had been a permanent moratorium on these debts. They were never expected to be repaid. They were a social investment in producing prosperity in different public institutions. But suddenly they were turned into financial debts. And there was a demand by the central government for the fast repayment of debt to its coffers in order to keep the new bond market in sovereign debt, Indian sovereign debt, ticking over and to keep in good standing with international financial institutions. Now, the result of this austerity was quite simply a restructuring of livelihoods and even the form of the river itself as dredging ended, new islands appeared, ships had to navigate up and down it with just 10 centimeter clearance between the bottom of the ship and the river. There were layoffs, privatization, and the outsourcing of work. 
Now, not surprising, the impact on the working classes was devastating. There were new experiences of increasing time insecurity among, in particular, shipyard workers and their families. Their workplaces turned into spectacular bubbles that rise and fall from the mud of the shore in a temporary form. They didn't know if this work would last, and they had to take part in very insecure, dangerous work as there was no long-term investment in, in, in infrastructure by their employers. And they began to feel that they had no future to act on, hope, they felt help, hopeless, that they had no resources for social reproduction, they started to delay marriage, the education of their children, etc. New practices of anticipation emerged as well in this timescape. There were the kinds of forecast of mounting debt in the bureaucracy and the port trust itself, which actually created and also hid the inequality of fiscal, that fiscal prudence was creating. Entrepreneurs on the river running shipbuilding firms tried to divine what powerful bureaucrats were about to do and if they would give them work. And workers themselves tried to divine the fortunes of the shipyards that they were working in. How was the latest inspection of their work going? What was the owner spending their money on? So what we have here is the emergence of new class time spaces. We have public sector workers who are speculating, in fact, with their wage capital in the shares of local and national companies and investing in private property and consumer goods. We have entrepreneurs cobbling together family, private, and state capital in speculative enterprises and converting their capital into educating children. And we have more insecure working classes with less resources. So what does this qualitative approach to austerity show? First of all, it shows that austerity is really involves the fast repayment of public debt to support primary and secondary bond markets. Austerity is not just a crisis of amounts of public debt. It's a new time rhythm for government capital, which I saw playing out on the waterscape of the Hoogly. The effects of austerity are an intensified extraction from public resources, an outsourcing of state work to the private sector, and exploitative labor relations that are actually directly promoted by the state. And the time space of austerity is really an increasing time insecurity for some social groups, in my case, for the working classes. So what kinds of things am I adding by this sort of analysis, um, this kind of qualitative analysis, to policy, to our understanding of policy? Quantitative approaches really focus on how much and how little, how much tax should be uh, taken from, from us. Uh, it also focuses on perhaps the direct transfer of payments to the poor in welfare schemes that have become very fashionable across the world recently, including in India. The quantitative vista creates a focus on redistribution, redistributive policies. A qualitative analysis does something a bit different. It, me it means that we have to start to think about how we're going to increase security for all. And in particular, we have to focus on informalized workers or, precari or the precariat, how we're going to achieve social justice for precarious work. We focus on issues of social reproduction. For whom is the reproduction of status or mobil social mobility possible? So in this situation, if we take a qualitative vista on these issues, then we can see that redistribution is not sufficient. We need to also think about how money can be created differently in the first place and what the government can do about that. So I hope that I've convinced you through my talk that we need a rapprochement of quantitative and qualitative vistas. And I'm just going to suggest in my conclusion what, uh, what that rapprochement might look like. 
I think that if we bring together quantitative and qualitative vistas, we can look at the absolute amounts of capital accumulated by social groups, as in a quantitative analysis, and the relations generated, as in a qualitative analysis. We can also look at the various shares of national capital, but we can also look at, from a qualitative perspective, the effects of these forms of capital on different social groups' abilities to chart a life course. We can look at the macro level of the national economy and the micro level of the community and family strategy. And we can look at national accounts, as in a, qu a quantitative approach, and the uncounted, as in a qualitative account. We can trace the unaccounted and informalized work, household labor, and social reproduction. So this rapprochement will take us more inside the time spaces of inequality that exist within, within our world, and perhaps suggest potentially new forms for national accounts themselves. I'd now like to introduce Professor Gareth Jones, who's Professor of Urban Geography, as I've already explained, at the London School of Economics. Um, and his work has straddled a wide range of contexts um, in Latin America, including Mexico and also Southern Africa. Um, and I think today he's going to be talking about some, uh, some recent work that was funded by an ESRC grant in South Africa. More or less. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, and apologies then that in as much as I'm going to uh, read uh, much of the paper, but I think it does follow on from Laura's uh, quite well, but with uh, secondary apologies to Monty Python, it will also be uh, now slightly different. Um, I read Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century just before going on holiday last summer. Fortunately for my family... I put its ideas, its very rich ideas, to the back of my mind for the following few weeks. That is, until the last day of that holiday, when we were in San Francisco, on Market Street, close to the financial district, and where I noticed a high-end, high-res condominium. It's called the Ritz-Carlton Club and Residences. Starter prices for two-bedroom, 65-square-meter apartments are $1.3 million, plus taxes, plus annual fees. Amenities include attended garage parking, business facilities, fitness centres, and, of course, security. One online advertisement I later discovered claimed that thanks to the Ritz-Carlton, quote, San Francisco is a 21st century showplace, the pinnacle of luxurious urban living. What I also noticed was that two doorways along, someone had made their residence in a shop doorway. The stench of urine and sweat was palpable from metres away, and this person was not alone. Anyone who's read Teresa Gowan's excellent ethnographic account of hobos, hustlers and backsliders, homeless in San Francisco, will recognise the wealth created through finance, media and arts and the iterative dot-com dot bubbles in the Bay Area have not filtered down to the dumpster divers of downtown and the Mission District whose welfare relies on an assortment of civic agencies and very little state care. I felt, good geographer, that this scene needed to be explained to one of my children. So picking a victim, I asked if he had, guard, if he had seen the guarded and gated condo, the handmade chocolatier next door, and the street sleeper one door further along. Yes, he had, it turned out. 
Uh, and he asked, had I seen the man sleeping in the tree? Uh, <laughs> the man with no clothes. And I had not. Contemporary San Francisco, as noted by Fran Tonkis last week, um, is an example par excellence of what she called the visibility of inequality in the city. And many of people's concerns with the qualities of public space in which the interactions are being designed, social interactions are being designed out, regulated out, priced out, and policed out, quite often violently. My gripe with Thomas Piketty's capital, uh, once I got back home, I realised, uh, and which I take up in the British Journal of Sociology essay uh, that uh, Mike and others put together, is that it did not give, in my view at least, sufficient attention to the kind of geographies that I described and which Fran put together also last week. Broadly speaking, I asked in that piece, where is the geography of capital in capital? I very much agree with Piketty's call to end intellectual turf wars between economics and the rest, but I would like at least geography to be recognised as part of that rapprochement. In so doing, I think this idea of time-space as affording neither a privilege to time, quantitative and historical time as per capital, nor space as simply that place where stuff happens, or spatialities, the differences that space makes, is really helpful. And as a geographer, my interest is to consider inequality, and we can go through injustice, unevenness, and difference, not as an outcome, but as a process, and one in which space, an increasingly urban space economy, is constitutive of wider inequalities. As a researcher most, mostly interested in the micro-scale of urban living, I'm not naturally drawn to the nation-state or the global economy as the scale of my analysis. I'm much more comfortable thinking about the relation of people to income, capital, the state, and each other at the level of the street, the neighbourhood, or the home, and broadly to do so qualitatively. The time-space of class in the 21st century, um, for me at least, acts as a prompt to think about how capital accumulation, however, is both manifest in space and time, the quantitative approach, but is also a reflection of past social relations and formative of contemporary ones, the qualitative experience of capital accumulation. And really, for me at least, there are kind of three uh, questions which generate the remainder of the talk. Firstly, what does proximity do Social proximity do, physical proximity do, in a world of extreme and possibly growing uh, inequalities. What does it mean to be near or close to the winners? Secondly, where is the compatibility uh, in terms of economic, where there is compatibility in terms of economic capital, broadly equality of economic capital, what then is the role of social and cultural difference between these groups, these elites, or others? And to what extent can spatial proximity expose these differences or means for their accommodation or resolution? And thirdly, how can a qualitative analysis expose the temporal uncertainties of class in space? Partly because of my discomfort at how capital had been commended for thinking about inequality in terms of what's happened to the top 1% or 0.1%, 
I'd wanted to actually write this talk initially um, around the experience of inequality from those who were panhandling on the street for food, medication, shelter, or even clothing. And that's work that I've done previously in Mexico and elsewhere. But so struck by San Francisco and of this kind of plutocracy in its gated condo or what Iwa Ong calls the pied-à-terre subjects of the megacity, I want instead to focus on the elitescapes, as I've called them in a recent article. So, broadly, um, what are the contemporary time spaces of 21st century capitalism? For most geographers, at least for certain geographers, uh, the contemporary time space of capitalism is an interplay of the hypermobile flows through networks of hardwire infrastructure and softwire knowledges and power, with the need for capital occasionally to kind of get stuck at particular locations. Well-known arguments that cities generally are those stuck spaces uh, because they attract the skilled, the agglomerative networks, the innovation, uh, hubs and so forth, and then in turn further enhance inequalities through wage premiums, real estate and so forth, is fairly well uh, rehearsed. But there's also a sort of secondary piece of work here which is a growing awareness that capital accumulation in the 21st century takes place increasingly in what Keller Easterling and others have called extra-state spaces. Zones, compounds, corridors, mega-projects, and cities, cyber cities, smart cities, and the like. Um, What Mike Davis, rather separately, has called the evil paradises of the world economy. Many of these spaces or zones are outside of state oversight, only selectively compliant with international laws and protocols on capital diligence, labor, human rights, and the environment. Many of them are self-governing arrangements in which uh, the arrangement of space, governance, and rights conforming to what Nezar al-Said has called a new medievalism. Their permanence, their apparent permanence, rests on the uncertainty um, that capital could relocate from them at relatively short notice. Think of HSBC in that context, potentially threatening to move from London uh, to Hong Kong. The temporality, then, of contemporary capitalism is based, on the one hand, on the claim that capital can move at little cost, but at huge impact and fast. Nevertheless, even the rich have to live somewhere. And most rich people need to live Um, with the power to isolate themselves from the poor, from the outcasts on the other side of the wall or the street. And one such space is the gated estate. The slide is of uh, a place called Kennedy Road in in Durban. And just down that road, uh, one sits Zimbali, uh, a gated estate. But political economy does not create constants, and the work of Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Sais, and others shows that medium and long-term shifts in who holds capital and how that capital is acquired has has changed over the 20th century, from inheritance to work, broadly speaking. But when one delves down qualitatively and into specific spaces, and I'm going to take us into one of these gated communities in a second, one sees that that shift is actually quite lumpy in practice. Who owes their position in that estate to inheritance or at least thinks that they do, rubs up against those who think they owe that existence in that estate to merit and work and dynamism and innovation and smartness. And South Africa here is a useful case in point, I think, and an example that's been very little written about, to my knowledge, 
in all the attention given to Thomas's book, and including perhaps one of the most obvious measures of inequality and social processes around which capital and other forms are, are debated, which of course is that of, uh, of race. Post-apartheid South Africa is a case of the tensions of the state in the 21st century and the end of the 20th, trying hard at one level to undo the histories of deliberate inequality, manifest both as race but also as income and capital. The South African state has distributed large quantities of capital to the poor through land and housing titling, through housing subsidy programs, and has engendered uh, programs such as the Black Empowerment uh, Program, the Bees, or the Black Diamonds Program, uh, to aid black households to acquire capital and income opportunities. Nevertheless, the quantitative data show that inequality in South Africa in 2011-12 was just as bad as it was in 2001 and just as bad as it was in 1994. So there are continued reasons uh, for gated estates such as in Bali uh, to uh, be retained and to extend. They organize protection against the poor and work as an aspirational space to those who are able to accumulate capital. The space of the estates offers elites or wannabe elites existential certainty against the potential of political risk and in the spirit of those special zones, those evil paradises perhaps to make a value judgment, represent a pact that social mobility can be attained through the market, which South Africa and the ANC has done very powerfully to present as meritocratic and apolitical and neutral rather than through explicit redistribution of wealth. What then happens uh, fairly briefly in uh, the gated spaces and in their time space? Well, on the one hand, I think the gated estate marks a moment in the accumulation of capital. Uh, they are the spatial outcome of the mediations which perhaps Laura has, has talked about. They also mark a means to preserve class privilege, inheritance for the future, uh, in many ways. And they do so within political norms that operate to deny the accusation, at least up front, that class is legitimated on the basis of racial ideology. Nevertheless, our research shows that in post-apartheid South Africa, inequality of capital obscures the socialization of race in spaces such as the gated estates. Quantitatively speaking, uh, the map on the left is uh, households in, in Durban uh, by race in 2001 and on the right in 2011. And I'll cut to the chase by saying that there's almost no difference between uh, uh, where white households are, where black and other uh, race groups or ethnic groups are located. As you move out to the band of gated estates, which are up by the word spot there, broadly, um, you, you could see, if you were to look more closely at the data, that in certain estates, over 90% of households identify as white. There are a couple which are, identify as 100% white. But on the whole, around 78, 70 to 80% of households in the Outer West identify as white. The preservation of capital value and class privilege is not expressively, expressly modif modified or mediated, perhaps, through race, um, however, in these spaces, but is mediated through euphemisms of lifestyle and taste. 
Our ethnography of the elite spaces of the gated estates in Durban suggests that social proximity is mediated by what Valdana, Saldana has called the somatic norm. Affluent white residents most easily fit this norm. They are the natural residents of spaces such as this, or this, or even that. <laughs> it's an estate called Camelot, <laughs> in which there are six castles and I think about 40 or so Elizabethan mansions. It takes kitsch to heights or depths hitherto never seen before, or this. Affluent white residents most easily fit this norm because they are the typical, the natural kind of person who belongs in this space. The success of black, house, of black people to accumulate capital through the market over the past 20 years diminishes their deviance from the somatic norm in terms of wealth, however, but not in terms of class. Crudely, economic mobilities, and there aren't many of them, are not equivalent to class mobilities in this context. Classes contested and negotiated at the most local level. You can move in, but you cannot belong, uh, is some, what the ethnography is beginning to show. People talk about residences' deportment, their fashion, their furnishings, the number and the make of cars that they have on their driveway, the quality of their garden furniture, their participation in events such as the Queen's birthday, or Halloween, and sport and gardening. To exemplify the naturalness of the elite space, people will therefore obscure race to say that everybody who is successful and meritocratic and mobile should want to live in a space such as Camelot and others. As Margie says, and you know, it's not white, just, it's bleh. And you know, it's not whites who want to live only in gated communities, it's the well-to-do blacks. They all seem to think it's a white thing that we all want to get behind walls and gates, but Simon says it's a wealth thing. The naturalness of the desire for gated living supports a claim that the estates are not exclusively about race, and the interaction between Bruce and Judy underscores that. Yet in, in their quote, if you get through it, um, it says, through Judy, we've got a black family living here and we've never had any trouble with them. They don't make a noise and they are exactly the same as everybody else. So here we have the somatic norm, the disposition of some residents to an expected lifestyle, how to live with the wealth as class. They, Judy notes, don't make noise. As another fat person put it, I think we have one African family here. I don't think people would be particularly racist here, but you can sense it's very quiet. You know if you had very noisy folk and you wanted to slaughter an animal in the front garden, that would get a few people going. From other conversations, we could add to paraphrase the slaughtering of animals or noise, well, people who don't sit on their front driveways, people who do put up curtains as soon as moving in, and who don't put up Diwali lights uh, and other uh, 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 additions to their home. As we've followed up in some of our work, the architectural styles, and you've seen, of the estates does important work to underscore the exclusiveness of older forms of wealth, and this is the nods to history and time here. Time in the present, nodding to the past, those Tuscan villas, the Camelots, uh, the antebellum Augusta estates, and so forth. Working on an idea of inheritance 
and of a colonial or pre-colonial naturalness to elite lifestyles, uh, which doesn't need to be too further unpacked, I think. Hence, as Mary has put it, I think from a cultural point of view, maybe I don't know, but whether they quite feel like they fit in. The black Zimbabwean couple that were staying in here, all the children went to private schools, tick box. So maybe their lifestyle and that has changed so that they can be assimilated. But I think that a more traditional type of family might find it a little bit awkward, she says. Class relations work within the spaces of accumulation of capital. The estate as a set of distinctions in in the Bourdieuian sense sets up a disposition to certain lifestyles. And as a validation, that proximity of spatial residence is not coterminous with social and cultural proximity. This is the last example, but if we can read through it quickly, this is an interaction between a couple, Liz and James. And Liz says, I think they, again, they, anonymous, they are coming up in the market, but not all of them can afford a property like that. They are beginning to afford the houses, but unless they are a lawyer or doctor types, you're not going to get them affording a home like that. But I mean the one. When she speaks, you would never know what she is. Her English is so, and James interrupts, incredible. And then Liz goes on, and she plays the piano beautifully. This could be kind of 19th century Belle Epoque almost. She's been brought up in private schools right through her school career. When she moved in, it was quite funny. She was walking her two small children, and someone turned around and said, you know the maid has moved in with its children, its children. And we pointed out it wasn't the maid, it was the homeowner. So what we've got here is that despite their capital, Despite their being elite, the black people in in some of these estates carry with them what Pua in a very different context has called the burden of doubt. They are the winners. They are the top 1%, the 0.1% in uh, still unequal South Africa. They've won the game, if you like, but they are not yet full and unconditional members of an elite. The black homeowner was afforded a tolerated identity as a possible maid, albeit with the possibility that she had moved in with the children until it became clear that she'd played the piano beautifully. Conclusion, therefore, what I've really tried to do in the paper is is to give an example, maybe a fleshing out, um, that inequality needs to be understood as lived practice, that needs qualitative and possibly ethnographic tools to understand how, in the spatial arrangements of these zones such as the gated estates, People live in proximity to one another, but also with large differences uh, between them. The capital accumulation that got them there is only part of the story. And I don't want to feel sorry for elites, um, but just simply intellectually to recognize the distinctions between them. Residence and fitting in with the norms of elite living needs constant work for those people and reveals other inequalities predicated on history, time, of colonialism, racism. The histories of inequality live on in space. And anxieties about class formation under contemporary capitalism. Class relations demonstrate confidence that some people are in space and in time with the disposition of elite status, while others carry that doubt and identification that they will be marked as still on the outside. Thank you.
now we're going to hear from uh, Professor Mike Savage, um, who is the author of four single and co-authored books on class in the UK. Um, and most recently, there's uh, just forthcoming um, soon is uh, his most recent co-authored work on social class in the 21st century. Thank, thank you, uh, Laura. Well, it's... Um, <clears throat> It's great to be here at the start of the um, III, talking about capital and accumulation. I want to begin by, um, in a sense, reflecting upon the olive branch which uh, Thomas Piketty has given to social scientists from the perspective of economics uh, by reflecting back as a sociologist about we're in very interesting times, which in some ways parallel those in which economists are in. We've heard from Thomas and also from Tony Atkinson, who's here, that the way that economics has recently not dealt with inequality and it's trying to issue is how to bring inequality back onto the agenda of economics. Within sociology, there's an interesting story, which is that uh, the study of class, which was thought to be dated and old-fashioned, uh, was taken off the agenda of sociology in many respects over the last 20, 25, 30 years, including, of course, by various luminaries at the LSE, um, such as Tony Giddens and the late Ulrich Beck. But we're now back. It's a very interesting time where debates about class are, uh, I think, once again... Um, um, exciting sociologists, and I think it's a real opportunity for us to work across the sociology-economics divide as well as anthropology and geography to really do some amazing work. But one of the points, the main point I want to try and uh, get over today in my brief 20 minutes is that the concept of class, which I think we need in sociology, is different from those which have been part of the sociological mainstream before, different in several ways, uh, but two I want to emphasise. One of them is about time, so I think sociologists have normally seen class as what job do you do, what do you do now, and they've then thought about how that may be affected by what you've done in the past, but that issue of temporality has not been central. And I think the challenge by Thomas, but also by people like uh, Bourdieu, is to place the issue of time at centre stage. And I think there's an interesting anecdote reflecting upon last week's election. I mean, the debate about why didn't Labour do better... Um, Tony Blair made this point that uh, the Tories had better appear to the aspirational vote. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it raises the issue that perhaps the issue was not which party best represents your interests at this point in time, but which, in which party is seen to articulate your expectations for the future and your trajectories in time. And if that's true, we need to think about class as a more mobile and temporal process. And secondly, um, I want to try and argue, too, that economists have put to the forefront measures of inequality to do with things like income deciles or wealth, wealth groupings, which sociologists have often said, well, that's not really to do with us. We're interested in occupation. I actually want to argue that we need to, and we can use as sociologists economic measures to advance our understanding of social class. Um, just saying, this is a collective uh, paper. It's drawn, drawn upon a whole series of bits of research by my colleagues at the LSA, all of whom are in this room, uh, all of whom have been energised by this project which we've been involved with on the Great British Class Survey. And I haven't got time to go into details, but I want to try and give you a few snippets uh, around these themes of temporality, accumulation, and um, taking the sole focus of occupation. And I want to begin with this famous diagram, which you all have seen uh, from uh, Tomar's work, um, and indeed we saw it earlier today with Bob Rothorn, uh, with a very simple point, that one of the implications I draw from it is sociologists often fixate on the present and think, about, think very much about turbocharged capitalism as being entirely 
different from anything which came before. We're now in a new epoch. One of the implications, I think, of doing these figures of capital accumulation and seeing how the line is rising towards recent times is to say, actually, the accumulated weight of the past is increasing. So we actually need to take seriously, actually, we shouldn't be obsessed with presentism. The accumulation of capital in housing and trade in all sorts of um, uh, industrial corporate stocks is actually increasing, and therefore we need to understand the relationship between the past and the present in a much more sophisticated way than sociologists often do. And this is where, when I read uh, Thomas' book, I was, I was just uh, I was amazed by the extent to which there's a kind of potential dialogue, um, which I found, speaking as a sociologist, enormously exciting. Three things uh, strike me. Um, first, I've already made the point about historical accumulation. Let's not just fixate upon the present day and the present day context. Let's put that in the long weight of history. Um, and we can do that, I think, using the concept of capital. Capital as something which is accumulated and invested and um, uh, has a rate of return. And now I'm well aware in this audience uh, that there's all sorts of arguments about how is capital accumulated and the mechanisms and the causal loops and links which actually create capital. But even leaving that debate on one side, I think we can still take capital as accumulated assets and wealth and reflect upon its significance for class. And secondly, as someone who's been very influenced by Pierre Bourdieu's thinking about social class, um, Bourdieu famously argues we need to take capital seriously, but most of his work focuses upon cultural capital and social capital. And although he talks about economic capital, he says very, he says very little about it. It's kind of left hanging. It's important, but sort of, uh, I won't go there. I think in a way, I mean, one way to read Thomas' book is he's giving us the economic capital analysis, which goes alongside some of the Bourdieu's analysis of cultural capital. And this allows the possibility of a multidimensional perspective on inequality, which we really haven't been in that position to have that before. And thirdly, a focus on the top end of the class structure. Now, this is really important to me because I think one of the big arguments coming out of the Great British Class Survey, which I'll briefly give you a flavour of in a minute, is actually sociologists have been fixated upon the boundary between middle and working class. It's kind of, you know, where do you stop the middle class, white-collar work versus uh, the working class, um, manual work, manufacturing work. That's important, but really we need to understand the top-level dynamics much more effectively. And then in a way, that's, that is really, I think, underscored by Thomas' work. So I'll just talk you three, through three ways in which I think we can extend these sets of arguments and uh, enhance sociological perspectives on class um, in a way which I, th I think may be profitable for understanding the nature of class society in the 21st century. The first is this. Let's, let's think about occupational models of class. These remain the mainstream, certainly in the UK, of how we think about class. You put people into a class schema according to their jobs, according to their employment position, and then you predict a certain range of outcomes on the basis of those. Now, much of my career I've been engaging with these models, and they have their value, but one thing they're not very good at is picking out economic inequality. So here we have um, the seven, sorry, the six, six main classes as distinguished in our national statistics socioeconomic classification, which is ultimately derived from a version of John Goldthorpe's class schema. Um, and you can see on the left-hand side, the most privileged class, high professionals and managers, then low professionals and managers, and then you work down to the various routine classes, the unemployed. As you'd expect, there's a gradient here. 
that the higher professional, professional to managers and the lower professional to managers get paid more. Um, however, the ratio of three to one, the highest class gets an average of three times the income of the lowest class. Well, that's a lot, no doubt about it, but compared to the differentials we, we get if we, say, break down income deciles, it is nothing. I believe the top 10% earn something like 17 times the bottom 10%. So my, my point is this. This occupational model of class isn't really getting at the nature of economic inequality today. Particularly, again, if you leave it outside the top two classes, it's fairly flat, really. So it may have its uses, but this is not really allowing us, as sociologists, to unravel economic inequality. And that's particularly true at the top end. If we just take the highest class, and again, I'm, I'm following in the invitation from uh, Tom and others to think about the top end, what's going on at the top end, um, this table here pulls out all the, all the specific occupations in the higher professional and lower managerial class. And my point is this, that actually they vary quite a lot. And here I'm indebted to the thinking of people like David Grosky, the American sociologist, who says we should be focusing on what he calls micro-classes, not the kind of big occupational classes, but the smaller groups. Um, and so the blue columns are the best-paid occupations within the same class as the red occupations. So according to standard occupational classifications, these should be, sort of, you might think, on the same wavelength. Well, actually, you can see a big contrast between God and Mammon in the first... Uh, <laughs> If you look at the two extremes, CEOs and the clergy uh, are the highest and the lowest um, paid groups within the higher professional um, and managerial classes, with the CEOs earning uh, three times as much on average as the clergy. Um, interesting, uh, one, of the point, one of the things I also like about Thomas' book is the way he has little time for the concept of human capital. Um, and again, difficult to use the concept of human capital to explain why managers in IT, in PR, in production, gets so much more money than uh, people working in humanities. It's academics, natural scientists, business researchers, uh, chemists. You might think, at least in, in terms of credentialism, they'd be kind of roughly equivalent levels, if not, if not the people in red would have high levels of human capital. But clearly it's not picking up what's going at the top end here. <coughs> Furthermore, um, what we've shown, um, um, my colleague Daniel Lois and the audience has done some... Done, done some really important work on this, is if you look at trends over time, you can actually see that uh, there's increasing standard deviations within, within all those occupations. In other words, your occupation is a less powerful predictor of your income than it used to be. Uh, and this is not surprising, given what you said about trade, trade unionism and the decline of collective bargaining. It would appear to be the case, as it happens, there's more flexibility within certain sorts of occupations. So hopefully that's the first part of my argument, that we need, need to kind of recognise the importance of occupational class divisions but not fixate upon them alone. How do we take it forward? Well, I think the way to do it is to take more seriously the power of accumulation and inheritance. And I think a lot of interesting work we're doing around the Great British Class Survey is allowing us to unpick quite complex temporal effects. Um, this chart here indicates the proportion of different occupations at the top of the class structure. These are the occupations in the top... Uh, higher professional managerial class and the proportion of people in those occupations who come from senior manager or professional background, i.e. elite occupations. And again, the point is this, that um, there's a big difference. So barristers and judges are twice as likely to have uh, parents who were working in senior management or professional positions compared to IT managers. Um, what's going on here? Well, it's the historical occupations 
which have always been historically powerful, which had the highest portions of uh, their uh, incumbents from advantaged backgrounds. It's interesting how many of the group with a lower proportion of parents from those backgrounds tend to be in IT, web design, new kinds of information technology areas. New areas of employment tend to bring in, it would appear, bring in a higher portion of people from outside privileged backgrounds, but also, I haven't got the figures here, but also they don't, get, they don't tend to get paid as much. There seems to be some reinforcing dynamics between old occupations, uh, privileged backgrounds, and income levels. Here's a table which uh, Daniel and Sam in the audience have put together, which also shows very interesting what we call what they call class ceiling. We've heard about the glass ceiling as reflecting to the gender disparities, very significant, but there's also a class ceiling. So if these, this table here compares the income you get oops, from um, people working in these jobs according to whether you come from a privileged background or if you are upwardly mobile from a manual and never work background. And the point is this, that pretty much all those occupations you get more pay if you happen to come from a senior management or professional position. Um, some of the gaps are really quite striking. CEOs, £101,000 if you have come from a well-off background, compared to £83,000. Uh, lawyers, £21,000 gap, that's you know, 35% for that intermediaries. It gets a bit less, and there's interesting issues as to why that might be. If you look around at doctors, where the disparity is much less, about five, £6,000. Nonetheless, you can see the issue here, accumulation. The advantages of the parents get passed on, it would appear, to the children in quite complex ways, which we need quite fine-grained tools to capture, but we have managed to do that in the GBCS. So my final point, time running out, um, and here I am speaking as a sociologist, wanting to say, well, the economic dimension is fantastically important, but we need as sociologists to bring in the social and cultural dimension. And my argument would be that using the Great British Class Survey, which has a lot of questions around those issues, allows us to see how there's a lot of um, intersecting advantages between those three areas. And in particular, this term, top-end outlier effects. That is to say, when you get to the top few percent, then the advantages spiral off in a non-linear way. Um, that's obviously been shown by all the economists showing the, the curve upwards towards the top few percent of the income and wealth distribution. It's also true in social and cultural life. And the, uh, the argument I would make, speculatively, is to say those three sets of advantages overlap with each other, and they essentially reinforce each other, so generating class advantages. Here's an example. This is not my own work. This is a Danish PhD student who got this nice graph, the proportion of sons with the same employer as their father. And the point is this, and comparing Canada and Denmark, for most of the income distribution, it doesn't make much difference. It's roughly the same. You have the same chance of having your father in the same job as you. But if you go to the extreme right-hand side, then the proportion of sons with working in the same area as their father rapidly goes up. Uh, presumably they're inheriting the family business or inheriting a position from their, from their fathers. And as you can see, it approaches, uh, it's well over double it's in the middle. But it's only the extreme right-hand side you see that. So it's not a straightforward linear effect. And it's those top-end dynamics which are really important. We found something very similar when we did our notorious seven-class model for the Great British Class Survey. Um, I don't want to go into that today, otherwise I'd never get away. But um, 
we, have, we define seven classes on the basis of people's economic, social and cultural capital. Um, the point I want to make is that really this elite class stands out from all the other seven on all the economic measures. So I began by saying occupational class doesn't give us a handle to look at income inequality. But actually, this kind of model class does, and it's always a kind of extreme outlier, the elite class. Here's household savings. The elites have far more household savings than any of the other seven classes. The value of your house, again, the elite more than double any other class. Um, here's another one, which is to do with the chances of graduates from different universities ending up in our elite class. And again, what interests me is it's not a linear process here. These are all what we call Russell Group universities. These are all good universities. Um, but it's the top five or six universities where the proportion of graduates who go into the elite increases, in Oxford, LSE, Cambridge, etc. So it's, 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 it's these top-end outlier effects which I think are very striking. Finally, a um, graph prepared by Katerina Hecht um, about class consciousness. This is, in a sense, you know, Thomas opens the challenge to sociologists, what does it all mean for thinking about social class? Well, we had, we had a question about what class do you think you're in? Only 8% of people in the Great British class survey thought they were upper or upper middle class. Not many. It's not popular. Most people think they're working or middle class or lower middle class or something like that. But, and as you can see, 90% of people or more earn below £100,000. And so there's not much movement here until you get above earning £100,000 household income. This is actually after taxation. And then it shoots up. And by the time you get to £200,000 plus, sorry, it should be two-thirds thinking they're upper class. So it's a very sharp gradient at the top, for the top few percent in terms of the proportion thinking they are upper middle class. Two last slides. So just to bring it together, um, you know, economic inequality is much more than that, as we all know. It's massively tied in with social inequality, social dynamics, social class inequalities, as well as um, uh, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. And if I had time, I could talk about some of the intersections there. Um, I think a big focus, though, is that we need to move away from the fixation on the middle working class divide, which still has been a kind of bedrock of much as I was thinking. And a focus on top-level processes is really important. I don't think, actually, that a focus on the 1% is helpful. To say, I, I think that puts far too straightforward a boundary and a much more complex set of distributions. The top 1% is very, very diverse. And similarly, a lot of wealth does percolate through, as Thomas has shown, to the 5%, the 10%, the 20%. And I think we need to have more serious concepts than just the 1%, which is kind of circulating. My final slide is an indication of what it might be. Th taking seriously this point about what does it mean to think about class over time? And the suggestion which I want to think about is that really um, there are these kind of three classes which have different relationships to time, fundamentally. So what we call in our forthcoming book a wealth elite is defined by the fact that they have accumulated capital in the family, which is being inherited and passed on, and they are, people in those positions are kind of custodians for accumulated assets, which they are expecting to inherit or are inheriting, and which they can expect to shape their lives. They're in a very different position from those who are kind of in the middle class. Um, it's the middle class, which arguably is the middle stroke working class, which is the focus of much thinking about class. Because this is a group, you might say, don't um, inherit much significant assets 
in their lives. They have to, in a sense, make their way by earning credentials, gaining skills, uh, getting promotion up job ladders, and hence dependent upon accumulation over the course of their lives. So it's a slightly more shorter-term shorter time scale. And thirdly, a group which we've heard about from um, Lisa and, and uh, Laura, the precariat, as we call them, another controversial concept, but what that concept gets at, I think, is a way in which you are sort of, you don't really have a chance to accumulate. You are getting by on a daily basis. And if this model has anything to, go to, 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 to uh, support it, but it's speculative, uh, what I suggest it does is it's making us think about class as embedding different kinds of temporalities, the extent to which it embodies uh, long-term time accumulation of kin, which may stretch back many decades, accumulation over your life course, and then limited prospect of accumulation at all. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Um, now we're going to, we've got about seven minutes for comments from Thomas. So I'll hand over to you. Yes, well, I, you know, I, I will talk longer after, after Tony's uh, Atkinson presentation and his book, so I don't want to be, to be too long uh, here. Le let me just say that, you know, I saw the three presentations were really extremely interesting, and I am, you know, in, in my book, I try to develop a multidimensional approach to capital and inequality and class, but of course, this is, you know, this is only, uh, um, you know, preliminary in many ways, and there are many dimensions which are not sufficiently uh, um, um, explored and, and you know at first you know I, I very much agree with what uh, Laura told us about the need to reconcile uh, quantitative with more qualitative approach I I try to do this to some extent in my book but probably not enough let, let me emphasize one way in which I try to do it I, I really try to 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 emphasize the idea that the metamorphosis of capital ownership, the different forms of ownerships of capital over time, come together with the transformation of the uh, social and power relations between owners and and uh, and, uh, and and those who, who don't own much. Uh, and when you look at the kind of graph uh, that uh, Mike was showing us with the return of I. Uh, capital to income ratio in 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 Britain. You know, what, one important uh, uh, aspect is the the quantitative magnitude of wealth. But what's even more important is, the, as I say, the metamorphosis of capital, the change in the nature of wealth. So at the beginning of the period, you know, you have you start with land capitals, and in the late 19th century, you have of course a lot of industrial capital and also a lot of foreign ownership. So basically, Britain owns a big part of the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is sending to Britain and France so much uh, interest and income and, and uh, dividend payments that uh, countries like uh, France and Britain are in permanent uh, trade deficit at this time. But this is not a problem because they receive from the rest of the world so much dividend and interest that, you can, uh, that they can not only finance this trade deficit but keep being the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, what I try to stress in the book is that property relations are always complicated. You know, it's always complicated to pay uh, rent to your uh, landowner, as you all know, uh, uh, particularly in London or Paris. But, you know, when, it, when it's a country paying rent to another country, you know, it's even more complicated. And, and so what was happening at this time period is that, in effect, uh, 
you know, it's as if um, uh, you know you pay you pay rent to your owner, and and with the rent, the owner is buying the rest of the building. So so the process feeds itself, and and this was happening for real at the international level. So in the in the standard economic model, this is supposed to be. Uh, spontaneously uh, harmonious and mutually beneficial, but in the real world, uh, these property relations are always uh, violent uh, power relations, and in that example, this came with uh, political domination, military domination. And so, of course, all, all the property relations are not as violent as this uh, colonial era uh, relation, but, but th there is always this ingredient of, uh, of power and domination in, in capital and property. And so when I look at the evolution of the total value of capital, you know, it's never... It's, it's always important to open the black box and to look at these different forms of assets and the form of, of social relations that are behind each type of, of property. And this is what I try to do in the book, probably not enough, and then there's a lot more to do uh, 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 in, in, this, uh, in this direction. In particular, the geographical dimension and, and space, special dimension of, of inequality and ownership is certainly uh, not sufficiently explored in my, in my book, where too often I take the nation state as the, the unit of analysis for which we have data, but of course, again, that's not a good excuse not to change the unit of analysis. Uh, I, I, let me mention, recently we tried with uh, my, my colleague Facundo Alvaredo to, to measure inequality of income at the level of the Middle East as a rule rather than Egypt or Syria or, 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 or uh, Saudi Arabia. And what's striking, you know, the, the, because there was a controversy after the Arab Spring movement saying, well, after all, according to the Gini index and inequality measures we have, these countries are not particularly unequal. Except, well, except first that the data is of low quality and the top part of the distribution is not well measured. And also except that maybe the perceptions of inequality have, have more to do maybe with regional inequality or sometimes global inequality than inequality at the level of the nation state. And if you put together the different uh, nation states or countries, uh, existing countries of the Middle East to, to look at global regional inequality, then because of the vastly unequal distribution of oil resources, you get immediately to the conclusion that the, the level of inequality aggregated at this geographical level is higher, much higher than anywhere else in the world, including Latin America, including... So, so that's... Uh, you know, this is an example showing that changing the, 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 the scale of analysis and the geographical scale analysis can, can change quite uh, dramatically the perspective. So let me stop there and, and just say, say a word about what Mike said. You know, I think that indeed we need to combine uh, analyses of social class based on occupation. You know, we are not going to forget entirely about occupational scale, but we need to use occupational scale together with other representation of inequality and in particular uh, deciles and percentiles uh, I think are very important because of course these are pretty abstract objects but at, at, the, at, at least you know, they, they make inequality visible and they make inequality comparable over time. Okay? So they make inequality visible which is important because when you look when you use some of this occupational scale, in effect, the, the, the effect of this occupational scale has been to put uh, inequality under the carpet, basically. You don't see it. You only see sort of harmonious relation between groups 
uh, where inequality is of a scale from one to three or one to four, you know, which uh, is sort of reasonable, and, and uh, you don't you don't show the ex the extreme dimension of inequality, and also. The, 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 the good thing with decide and percentile is that you can make comparison over time and between societies which are otherwise not comparable. So, you know, one, one percent is, is an abstract notion, but at least, uh, you know, one percent, this was about the, roughly the size of the aristocracy in France in uh, 1789. It was between one and 1.5 percent of the population. So you can compare say the share of wealth uh, in, in France in 1789 going to the, uh, to the 1% with the share of wealth going to the 1% today in the US, today in China. Of course, comparison between societies which are so different are, at some level are meaningless. It's impossible to compare them. But still, at the same time, it's useful to, to design and to develop a language and to develop concepts that allow to, to make a little bit of sense of this comparison. I think this is useful, of course, only if we are not too naive about the, the meaning of these tools and if we adopt, we use this kind of language together with other language which have more to do with the language used by the different societies to describe themselves and in particular to the occupational scale which each society uh, designs to describe itself, which is always very interesting. But we also need to develop uh, other language which allow us to go beyond the way each society uh, chooses to, to describe itself. So, uh, to, you know, to summarize, you know, I think there is a, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very important to try to combine these different approach and concept, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very glad that this representation uh, uh, sort of delivered this, uh, this general uh, message. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll just have three quick responses from each of the people that have spoken, and then uh, we'll end until 3.30. So do you want to say something in response, Mike? I mean, I think we're in agreement. I think, I think there is... I think one of the problems we've had is that people have been championing at one scale or one approach is better than another. I think what we're, what we're leading to is the idea that we need to kind of combine them in important ways. And the occupational scale, I think, is important. It does capture certain kind of cultural national ways of understanding social inequality, and they obviously need to be born, um, taken seriously. But I, I do think Thomas's point about it's more difficult to, to make comparisons as a result of that is also really significant. Well, it was really just to follow up, actually, from a kind of combination of Thomas and, and Mike, which is about the sort of temporalities um, of capital and of class, which I think the question is often you know, asked, where did your capital come from in the context of South Africa in particular and again as that burden of doubt uh, applied to certain groups as to where they may have got it from which whitewashes uh, where another group uh, got their capital from um, but actually implicit in that, cap in that question is often when did you get your capital um, and that's that trade off or that tension between the inheritance and, and the more contemporary so actually this longer term historical analysis is something that one does need to bring into even the kind of contemporary uh, sort of debates and tensions about uh, capital and class uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the presentism, uh, if you like, and that's certainly something I've learned, which is really important. 
Yes, I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed this interdisciplinary conversation. Um, and in particular, I've enjoyed it because in Thomas's work, he's so acutely aware that statistics are social constructions. And I think that it re that really raises the question for all of us of, you know, how can we change what we're measuring? And how could economists give qualitative data more, more legitimacy? And, and how could we create a public record of some of these situations of, of informality that um, I've described in my work and Le that Lisa's described in her work as well? Um, so I think I'm going to kind of leave that as a challenge for all of us. But I'd like you to join me in thanking all the speakers. <laughs>